2: The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q.
3: Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 23rd, 2022. On this week's show, Jack Hamilton will join us to talk about the NBA's conference finals and Patrick Beverley's emergence as the Patrick Beverley of NBA punditry. We'll also be joined by Alex Kirshner to discuss the feud between Alabama's Nick Saban and Texas A&M's Jimbo Fisher over who is the biggest cheater. And finally, The Washington Post's Molly Hensley-Clancy will be here for a conversation about U.S. soccer's historic equal pay deal and about the Women's Champions League final. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I am the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. I am joined by D.C.'s own Stefan Fatsis. You may know him from such softball games as the one he plays in and such books as Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hello. Welcome back from your crossword triumph. Is it called a triumph if you don't actually complete the crossword, but you make it? If you make it? Oh, it's a bigger triumph.
2: Making it. By far. Bigger triumph, really, for me, though, was organizing that National
3: School Scrabble Championship last week. We're very proud. It's a lot uh, of work. Great I of need it. a pat on the back to feel better. <laughs> PAT, worth how many points?
2: You know, that's one of the stupidest things that people say about Scrabble, because, look, if the P is on a double-letter score, if it's on a triple-word score, if it's on a triple-letter score, lots of possibilities for PAT. depends on how many words it overlaps or underlaps. Many ways you could go there, Josh. Come on, you know better.
3: Love the gatekeeping, figuring out ways to exclude people from your hobby. One of the most common things people do in any hobby. Five. <laughs> I will add that Joel is not quite back, but he will be with us very soon. Let's be honest, the NBA's conference finals have not been very good so far, unless you enjoy watching Celtics players get injured and then return to the floor dramatically to lead their team to a slightly closer loss. And yes, the Warriors have done some cool things, but... My enjoyment of Andrew Wiggins' dunk on Luca was tempered by having to watch the Mavericks role players miss 8,000 consecutive three-pointers, but that's just me. Joining us now is Jack Hamilton. He is not me. He is writing about the NBA playoffs for Slate, and when he is not doing that, he is a professor at the University of Virginia, and he is the author of Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll, and the Racial Imagination. Great book. has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but that shouldn't deter (laughs) you from acquiring it. Hey, Jack. (laughs)
0: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back.
3: So um, the Warriors are up 3-0 on the Mavs, who are perhaps wishing they could just play Game 7 against the Suns on repeat. Uh, The Heat are up 2-1 on the Celtics, despite Jimmy Butler missing much of Game 3 with knee-soreness. I do still have hope that the rest of the Miami-Boston series will be fun, even if neither of these teams is close to full strength.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that Miami and Boston... I think we can expect to hopefully see at least one really great game out of that series. It's definitely been... um, This is
3: the depths that we're at 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 this point.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, compared to the Western Conference series, which is basically seems all but over at this point um, with the uh, Mavericks going down zero games to three last night. But yeah, Miami versus Boston has been a real seesaw series. Miami's currently up two games to one. Game four is tonight. Um, but the, the games have certainly been, those t- teams feel a lot more evenly matched. And uh, there's at least the potential, I think, for a really classic memorable game, which, yeah, so far we have not gotten in any of these series, I would say.
2: And it does feel like the NBA playoffs started with such promise. I mean, we were all so excited about the first couple of rounds. Ooh, the Pelicans, and ooh, the Grizz, and even the Sixers I miss, and I miss Giannis. And I feel like we're left with not the most desirable matchups, even before these series started, and it feels like maybe that's playing out here. Why am I not as excited about Miami, Boston, yeah, and, and Dallas getting rolled?
0: I mean, I think some of it is that the second round had a had a number of really, really great series, you know, series that went to six or seven games, or at least series that had these very dramatic kind of narrative undertones, say, the Sixers series, you know, the, the ongoing tragedy that is the Philadelphia 76ers. But yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting, the series out West in particular, something that I've been really thinking about is that going into the playoffs, I and I think a lot of other people had an expectation that maybe we would just see Phoenix run the table because they had been so good in the regular season. You know, they finished, um, I think, eight games ahead of any other team's record. And then they were underwhelming in the first round of the playoffs, which they got through. And then they lost in seven to the Mavs in this really kind of almost operatic fashion. <laughs> you lose it, getting blown out on their home court in game seven. And there was, you know, the tragedy of Chris Paul underneath that. But there was also a sense, I think, after that series of. Oh my gosh! You know, are we seeing the ascendance of Luka Doncic and the Mavs, and maybe the Mavs are much better than we thought they were, and we could be going into a really terrific Warriors-Mavs series, and that hasn't happened at all, you know. And it it actually has retroactively made me be like, what happened with Phoenix was somehow even worse than it appeared (laughs) that they got blown out by this team that frankly seems out of their depth playing a Warriors team that I think is really really good, but maybe not certainly not as great as the, you know, previous Warriors teams that we've seen, um, you know, four or five years ago or whatever. So I didn't watch game
3: two live of the Mavericks Warriors series, and that was the one with the most drama where Dallas took a big lead and then uh, managed to gag most of it away in the third quarter before um, some classic Steph moments at the end of the fourth. And what I read about it before watching it was like, wow, classic Warriors, like third quarter, they really just kind of put things into overdrive. I watched the game, and I felt very betrayed uh, <laughs> by that commentary, but because what actually happened was the Mavs hit, I think, 15 three-pointers in the first half. The role players, Reggie Bullock, Dorian Finney-Smith, um, were just completely <laughs> unconscious from three. Um, Luca and Jalen Brunson obviously played played well as well. And then in the third quarter... For a long stretch, the game was like six to four. Like nobody was making anything, and the Mavs were getting the exact same shots, and they were rimming out. Um, the Warriors didn't seem to play better defense. The Mavericks didn't seem to play worse offense. And that's, I think, the thing that's been slightly annoying to me about that series is that the Mavs have these kind of comp- have these complementary players. They're good pieces. It's sort of like Grant Williams and game uh 7 of the Bucks Celtics series where he just missed a lot in the beginning of the game and then couldn't miss and that was kind of determinative and in this game it just feels like the Mavs role players have been good for this like one particular stretch of the series which was the first half of game 2 and otherwise have been kind of inadequate and then after game 3 Jack like the quotes from Dallas were like basically yeah we're not that, we're not good enough like this is a learning experience for us and it's like even you're saying you're not good at, like, yeah. <laughs> like, just like you said, it's like retroactively. I'm like, man, I kind of wish Phoenix was there. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that Phoenix, you know, we can talk for days of, or speculate for days about what actually happened with Phoenix. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously they were dealing with some injuries and stuff like that. Um they, yeah, Phoenix at full health certainly is a much better team than the Mavs. And a Phoenix Golden State series, I think, would have been really spectacular if we'd had both of those teams firing on all cylinders. I think that what you're touching on, though, more broadly is, and this is something that I've grappled with a lot as a basketball fan in recent years, is the just dominance of the three-point shot these days. And I don't want to sound cranky or something because I I, I mostly enjoy the way that basketball is played. But one of the problems that this era of just shooting so many three-pointers has brought to us, particularly in the playoffs, is a growing sense that some of these games are really just being settled by who's kind of getting lucky. You know, that you have these which teams role players can just suddenly, you know, get really, really hot. I mean, this has been the case in the uh, Celtics Heat series as well, where Boston won Game Two by shooting. You know, they shot I think nine of eleven for th- from three in the fourth in the first quarter, uh, which basically you know, like having a quarter like that is just going to be like that's the game right there, unless something you know dramatic, unless the other side happens to have a similar you know uh, quarter like that. So I think that there is an issue where where it's starting to feel a little bit like. These games are being decided by something maybe a little bit more than just, you know, who's got the most talent, uh, who's drawing up the best plays. There is a sense of like this kind of fortuitous, oh, if you happen to get hot, even for a brief period, that can just settle a game and, and in some senses, a series as well.
3: Who's got the hot goaltender in the mm-hmm. NHL playoffs? The most crazy stat from the playoffs, Stefan, is that the Heat, who are up 2 1, have won two quarters. In that whole series,
2: maybe the solution is to change the winner to who wins the most quarters.
3: That's what they, they did in the All Star Game. <laughs> yeah, Somebody's a, exactly a step exactly. ahead of you. I mean, the, and also, it's just a, a an interesting phenomenon that Dallas has the best player in the playoffs and the worst team, and that just kind of leads to a, a slightly unsettling fan experience.
2: Maybe there's also a little bit of the nation hasn't seen a lot of the Warriors and hasn't recognized yet how much better they've gotten, that Kevon Looney and Andrew Wiggins are vastly, vastly improved, and that everybody's healthy. Um, uh, Draymond Green, Steph Curry all missed substantial time during the season. You said earlier that they finished eight games behind Phoenix. That might not have been the case had they not been out for for so much time.
3: I mean, it's funny to think about it, given that it's the Warriors, Jack, but that's actually the one team— that doesn't necessarily seem to rise or fall based on whether the threes are going in. I mean, Looney and Wiggins, their rise. I mean, I guess a little bit with with Wiggins, but doesn't have actually much to do with random or or fluky, you know, shots well, going in. That's because the guys shooting in the threes
2: are really good at shooting threes, and we know that they're but, really good at shooting but, threes. But
3: even when they, but even when they're not hitting, just the uh, you know, sorry to sound like an NBA pundit guy, but like the gravity <laughs> that they have just opens up. <laughs> The, the floor for, sure. for everybody else. And so they don't have to make threes in order for their three-point ability to allow them to win games. I mean, the the fact that they won that game, too, with Dallas hitting 15 threes in the first half is a pretty strong evidence for that.
0: Yeah, I would just add, too, I would love to listen to, like, a 10-hour podcast series on the, the history of Andrew Wiggins' NBA career, because it's just so fascinating. You know, here's a guy who comes into the league as the number one overall pick. He's... Really was hyped as you know potentially a you know generational type superstar that really didn't happen. He was a intensely frustrating player during his years in Minnesota where he would score a lot and have these highlight plays. but all of the advanced numbers suggested that they were oftentimes worse when he was on the court. He was basically he wasn't a bust at the level of a Anthony Bennett or a Kwame Brown or something like that. But he was definitely seen for a long time as a number one pick who hadn't fulfilled the really, really high expectations. And now he's remade himself as this like incredibly valuable basically high-level role player on the Warriors. He ended up starting the All-Star Game this year because of a guerrilla campaign to elect him by a K-pop star who's obsessed with the Warriors. I mean, it's just an incredible story. He definitely did not deserve to start the All-Star Game. Um, But he's a much better player than I think a lot of people think of him as being because of the fact that he had this history where he was, he was consistently underwhelming.
2: And maybe you can just be a better player when you're playing with three of the best players of this past generation and everyone's not looking at you.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and another thing that's really impressive is he's reinvented himself basically as a defensive specialist uh, in Golden State, which was really seen as one of the weakest parts of his game in Minnesota. He was seen as a huge defensive liability. So it's a real testament to, I mean, not to sound again like, you know, Josh was saying like an NBA pundit, but like, you know, the culture of that organization and things like that. But there is, there definitely is something that, you know, Golden State has managed to get something way more useful and productive out of him than 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 he was ever able to access while he was uh, with the Wolves. All right, so the
3: highlight of last week, more than any of the games, was Patrick Beverly's run-through, what is known as the ESPN Car Wash. He was in uh, (laughs) Bristol for, I think, uh, less than 48 hours, and yet managed to uh, create some just moments we'll never forget. uh, this was the day, the, the first day was the day after Game 7 of the uh, Mavs Sun Series. And he uh, took the opportunity to roast his uh, nemesis. Is it a nemesis if it's a one-sided beef uh, <laughs> to, to roast Chris Paul? Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip.
4: Boy, scared of Luke. Ain't nobody afraid of anybody over there in Phoenix, man. Everybody in the league knows that, bro. Like, it's just, y'all don't know that because y'all not in the locker room. No one's afraid of Phoenix. We wanted them. We wanted them. no one's afraid of Phoenix. Yeah. I, I talked to some teammates, I ain't gonna say who, cause I I'ma say who, forget it. I talked to Paul George last night, man. Pat, ain't nobody scared of him. <laughs> but you face Dallas, you ain't scared of Dallas, but man, you You scared Luka. Hey man, you gotta get your get your game right when you play Luka. I'm just being honest.
3: you just being honest, Stefan. Just being honest. I mean,
2: if nothing else, Pat Bev is gonna have a lot of suitors when he hangs it up in a year or two. He's great. I mean, you know every NBA player seemed to react to Beverly, particularly taking out Chris Paul, which we haven't really even got to played those quotes yet. Um, but in terms of oh, you sheer- want to play
1: another
3: clip? Here's another clip. Oh, let's Gets hear. It. Yeah, it's more entertaining than than, than we are. <laughs> let's play another one.
4: <laughs> CP3, is he going to be a Hall of Fame? No question about it. Yeah, right. No question about it. Do guys in the NBA. Go to sleep early the night before playing the Phoenix Suns? Hell no. No. You mean as a team or would you talk about Chris Paul individually? <laughs> Chris Paul individually. Okay. No. I'm going to stake 44 over there in Phoenix. I'm mm. going to have me a nice little wine, probably sweat it out, and but uh, the pregame shoot around and get ready for Chris Paul. Steph Curry, I'm going, I'm going to bed at 8 o'clock. Mom, don't call me. My girl, don't call me. I don't, I'm, I'm locked in right now. It's, not, it's, it's, it's two different monsters.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. As a as a professor, Jack, I'm sure you can appreciate his eye for detail. The
0: steak, forty four, the wine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was you could definitely tell that this was something that Pat Bev had uh, been working on prior to, to his TV hit. I was actually joking with a friend that like he had hired a publicist at halftime of Game Seven <laughs> when the Suns were down thirty to the Mavs uh, just to get make sure he got on all these shows. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Trash talking. I mean, it's incredible, you know, slander, as they say. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really remarkable to hear an NBA player talk that way about a, a contemporary, essentially, you know, or a colleague in some senses. Um, and so I think that made it, you know, kind of jaw dropping. Um, but Pat Bev is also, you know, he's a pretty charismatic guy. Um, Obviously, from the clips, he's really funny. And Stefan's right. Like, he's going to have, I mean, he's going to have no shortage of opportunities to do takery uh, once his career is up.
2: And the takery isn't all bad either. I mean, I think that Pat Bev and, and what J.J. Redick also bring is that they bring an intelligence to the analysis, even though we're listening to mostly trash talk here. Pat Bev also is really smart about deconstructing the game, even if a lot of it revolves around Pat Bev. Um, so <laughs> mostly, <laughs> I mean, I thought the most remarkable thing about the, the Pat Beverly tour was that he actually got, and this is a credit to Stephen A. Smith, Stephen A. Smith actually shut up and let him talk, which was fascinating. Mm-hmm. He just asked him short questions and let Beverly go. So credit Stephen A. Smith knows when to turn it off and let the guest.
3: Does he? <laughs> he did that one time. That was Less a testament to Stephen A. Smith knowing uh, when to let the guest go, and more to like the fact that this is maybe the one guy. I mean, they've they've done this thing where they brought like Mad Dog Russo <laughs> yeah, out of well, wherever yeah. he was, and and it it Ooh. just really hasn't worked. And they just scream at and, each other. And as you, that was kind of one of JJ Reddick's right. standout moments on social media was when he went at Mad Dog Russo for saying like kind of coded. Uh, r- r- racist-ish things about Draymond Green and not liking the way that the Draymond Green approaches the game, unlike his favorite players from the '50s and '60s. But um, the the thing with Patrick Beverly and it it's been so interesting to see that other NBA players, including Draymond Green. I mean, Draymond said it in like a pretty kind of understated way, and he was. Saying it more as advice Like if you want to get into television You got to like think about the things you say Because and he said basically Uh what you said Stefan He's a really smart analyst He like says things about the game that you don't notice But um, that he kind of went too far And he's actually going to hurt his career You know you had players like And it's funny because every player has a podcast now. Draymond said that on his podcast. Danny Green said on his (laughs) podcast, like, you ain't playing no fucking defense out there. Uh, Matt Barnes, (laughs) who has his own podcast, said on ESPN "Like that he was out of line. Damian Lillard said it on uh, Twitter, this weird behavior. CJ McCollum said something on his podcast. But the the thing that I find so fascinating about Patrick Beverly is that jack this is like coded just based on the way he talks the way he's saying things that you don't normally hear it's kind of coded to us as listeners and watchers as honesty Mm -hmm. as truth like Mm -hmm. this is the kind of stuff that you don't get this is like what they talk about in the locker room like he explicitly codes it as honesty in um, the way he delivers it whereas in fact he just hates chris paul and like it wasn't discussed. And Stephen A. Smith kind of did a, a probably a bad job of this journalistically, <laughs> did not note that like Patrick Beverly was ejected in the playoffs last year for pushing Chris Paul in the back and just like clearly has a uh I mean, it's like good television to invite like Chris Paul's biggest hater on TV. But like some of the other stuff that he meant that he talked about that didn't really make um as as many headlines was defending James Harden, who was his teammate, defending Doc Rivers, who is his coach. It just seems to me like he's playing favorites rather than being honest.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought uh, there's many things about this that I find funny uh, and not not. Always, ha ha, funny. Uh, but I mean, one of which being that I think Pat Patrick Beverly. If you look at his career, is basically kind of a worse version of Chris Paul. <laughs> you know, he's be, he. They have a lot of the same tendencies. It's not surprising that they irritate each other. Uh, you know, Chris Paul is obviously going to be a Hall of Famer. Patrick Beverly is almost certainly not going to be. But there's an element of this that it's it's like the Spider Man pointing at Spider Man meme. And I, I think that that or like this guy gets the respect that I should get. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think that there was uh, irritation about that, I think, in among other players, you know, the players that pushed back on it. And yeah, Damian Lillard kind of coming out and n- not so much even defending Chris Paul, but basically... I don't think Patrick Beverly is a particularly universally beloved figure in the NBA by any stretch. And I do think that there was a way that his framing it, you know, as you noted, like the way that he framed it as honesty, I'm the only one that'll say these things, but everyone else thinks them when, in fact, it's really obvious that he's just got these sort of axes to grind um, or these favorites who he's going to defend. I, that would piss me off if I was an NBA player, you know, hearing a guy basically. There's a way that it's it, it's subtly suggesting that I'm the only one who's being honest. I'm the only one brave enough to say this stuff. Uh, and I think that, that that rubs people the wrong way, uh, you know, positioning yourself as a spokesperson. <laughs> and, and particularly, yeah...
2: I don't know. I mean, is that fair? I mean, Shaq and Charles get away with that all the time. I mean, do they get away with it because they're Hall of Famers and Pat Beverly isn't? I mean, what's the qualitative difference there?
3: I think the difference is, well, first of all, I should say that I would love for more Pat Beverly's, even though he's kind of one of one Like, this was actually, it kind of justified the existence of some of these shows that have, like, Just been a a blight on sports media for years. Like, this was a great, uh, a great moment for the get ups of the world. Um, But, Stefan, I think it's a little, it's different because. Um, it's it's better because he's a current player and because he's actually saying things that make other players uh-huh. mad when it often feels, and kind of as it should feel, mm-hmm. that it's like us against them, uh, uh, us being fans and them being players, like that um they're kind of have their own kind of club and community talking amongst themselves and we're not hearing about that. And so it feels good to like be in that circle if it's, even if Jack said it's not, uh, shared kind of uh, opinions, maybe as much as Patrick Beverly says they are. But, like, where Charles and 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 Shaq fit into a, a kind of time-honored tradition of the, like, crusty old player complaining about various things in the modern game, which, like, does it necessarily give them a pass? I don't, I don't know, but it's, like, it, it's just more kind of expected. It's like a cliché even to hear players complain, complain about stuff. And so that's what made this feel more original. Um, but also, I think, you know, it, it just kind of comes down to whether it's true or not. Um, and like I was saying, he's making this claim that everything he said is just like shared insider knowledge. And what these other players seem to be saying is like, no, yeah. you're just like saying stuff.
0: Yeah, and I think a difference too, I I would echo what Josh said about uh, Chuck and Shaq, uh, that most of their critique is almost like obsessively focused on younger players, the players that they're not currently playing with. And if anything, I think both those guys, at least from in my recollection, this is just like anecdotal, they have an almost gauzy relationship to a lot of the guys that they played with. You don't hear them go on TNT and slander you know, Mark Price, or I don't know, pick a, <laughs> whoever. Um, <laughs> whereas, yeah, I mean, it, interestingly, one of the, the a guy who is an older, retired guy who will do that is Kevin Garnett. Uh, I've definitely heard Kevin Garnett on podcasts and in various contexts where he will be very open about what he thought about playing against Chris Bosh, for instance, who he's said very disparaging things about. Um, and I wonder if that's one reason that Kevin Garnett has, you know, certainly had a very, very successful post-basketball career, but he's not in one of those studios. Seats Because I think there's a mutual understanding that he's got a tendency to not hold back on, on that front in a way that could create problems for the league and its historical apparatus.
3: Jack, we appreciate your uh, just brutal owning of St- of Stefan throughout <laughs> this uh, segment. <laughs> and uh, you're writing for Slate during the NBA playoffs. Everybody should check it out. Uh, Jack Hamilton, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having me, guys. It was, this was really fun.
3: Up next, Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher, and the college football feud of the century. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Last week, Alabama football coach Nick Saban and Alabama basketball coach Nate Oates participated in a fireside chat to promote the 2022 World Games in Birmingham. The World Games are an event that showcases non-Olympic sports, among them orienteering, floorball, and Stefan's favorite, beach handball. But back to the fireside chat, which did not include, uh, include a fire based on the camera angles I've seen. At one point, Saban took a break from promoting beach handball to deliver a long monologue about college athletes now being allowed to profit off of their name, image, and likeness, a development that he claims to support. But then there's this.
4: I mean, we were second in recruiting last year. a and was first. A&M bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, and likeness. Right? We didn't buy one player. Right? But I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future because more and more people are doing it.
3: The a and he is referring to there is Texas a and and their coach Jimbo Fisher had this to say at a press conference that he called the following day.
4: Some people think they're God. Go dig into how God did his, his deal. You may find out about, about a guy that a lot of things you don't want to know. We built him up to be the czar of football. Go dig into his past or anybody that's ever coached with him. You can find out anything you want to find out, what he does and how he does it,
3: and it's despicable. Go dig into how God did His deal with us. Now is Alex Kirshner. He is a Slate contributing writer. He's the co-host of the college football podcast Split Zone Duo, which naturally did an emergency episode on this whole situation, uh, which you should check out. Welcome, Alex. Thank you for having me, Josh. Stefan, great to be with you. I guess it was inevitable that this new world of players getting paid was going to cause a big explosion somewhere at some point. But I will confess that I wasn't expecting this particular series of volcanoes. Uh, What surprised you the most about this exchange? The most surprising thing for me
5: was just how escalatory the whole thing was. It's not new for college football coaches or anyone in sports or any business leader, for that matter, to have a, a little bit of disdain, even get into a fairly public feud with a competitor. But it is weird, especially in college football, to be so explicit about it when you know microphones are in the room, as Nick Saban was when he talked about Texas A&M. I think the typical approach when you want to dump on a rival in this way is to sort of use a a vague descriptor where everyone knows what you're talking about, but where you can plausibly claim you weren't. Like you would say, you know, there are certain schools in our conference that had great recruiting classes this year, the best recruiting classes they've ever had. And maybe Nick would have said that if he wanted to take a shot at Jimbo and Texas A&M. But no, he just said A&M. And I don't think it was Florida A&M that he was talking about. Uh, So that was a pretty big escalation to be that explicit about it. Uh, And then on the, the counter response from from Jimbo Fisher, uh, he talked for 10 minutes and he literally called a press conference in the middle of May just to retort what Nick Saban said. You know, football coaches don't really like talking to the media. It's not a thing that most of them, I mean, some there are exceptions, but I don't think it's a favorite May pastime when you'd rather be getting ready for what little vacation time you have in your year as a college football coach. Uh, And Jimbo just convened the entire College Station Texas press corps to talk for basically 10 minutes, almost completely uninterrupted about what a snake Nick Saban is. So very escalatory, very fun.
2: Saban also called out Deion Sanders at Jackson State. I mean, Jackson State paid a guy a million dollars last year that was a really good Division I player to come to the school. He also called out the Miami booster, John Ruiz, who uh, is doing NIL deals that have lured some transfers, uh, basketball transfers. So underlying all of this, to me, it feels like Jimbo Fisher is just the vehicle for Nick Saban to express his unease that is common with many college coaches, I imagine, about the fact that players are getting paid. This is less about rules breaking, and Saban knows that it's not about rules breaking, and Jimbo Fisher knows that it's not about rules breaking. It's about that these guys are unnerved, that the status quo is tumbling.
5: Yeah, I think two things going on with regards to the status quo that you just mentioned. The first one is that, straightforwardly, Nick Saban has made a really good living for himself doing this for a long time half million and the college football economic structure that this sport has, has made sure that he is handsomely rewarded for the excellent work that he's done at LSU and now at Alabama uh, and at several schools and uh, other stops along his college football journey before that. Uh, Not that he doesn't deserve to be paid well. Obviously, he's made a lot of money for Alabama. But yeah, I think Nick has about nine and a half million reasons a year to really like that players do not historically get paid in this sport, at least above the table. The other status quo thing that's going on, and I think that this is where the setting of these comments is important, uh, is that Alabama is the historic number one recruiter in college football for as long as Nick Saban's been there. It's why they're the number one team in college football over the time that Nick Saban's been there. And I think that it's premature to say that anybody else in any given year is a better recruiting program than Alabama. Uh, Texas A&M might like to act like that. Georgia uh, this year has given a decent case that that might be the case, that they kind of have a a co-grip together on recruiting now, as you saw when Georgia beat Alabama in the national title game. Uh, But I think Nick understands that this world of name, image, and likeness where you kind of have some pay-for-play dynamics coming in around this issue, too. I'm coloring a little bit outside the lines of the official rules. Nick knows that Alabama needs to be a, a serious player in that game, too, or you don't stay number one forever. You know, you have to change with the times. Right,
2: so the message then was less to Jimbo Fisher than to Alabama's boosters.
5: And who, And exactly right, and those were the people in the room, were business leaders in Birmingham, Alabama, who Nick, at, at a couple points in his longer remarks, addressed directly uh, about how they are probably going to be involved in getting players for Alabama in the future. He knows the score. He knows the way college football is going. I think this was a bit of a kick in the ass to the people who might help Alabama retain its historic perch as the top recruiting power in the sport.
3: Stefan, you're dramatically underplaying how much this is personal. On both ends. I mean, it was certainly received as being personal by Jimbo Fisher, but it's like sure you you describe Jimbo Fisher as a vehicle for this like larger principle that that Saban is espousing. I mean, Texas a a principle did not beat Alabama in the regular season (laughs) last year. Texas A M did,
2: and a principle also. These guys worked together. Clearly, Fisher has holds some grudges that he is finally letting out.
3: Yeah, I mean, so Fisher was Sabin's offensive coordinator at LSU, and The Athletic did a really good report on um, the friction there and how annoying it is and was to work for Nick Saban. And, you know, it's also been brought up, Alex, that Fisher was, like, outside the locker room when Alabama won one of its more recent national championships, and he said it was because... He wanted to, like, personally congratulate Nick Saban, I think, on tying Bear Bryant with six titles and how much kind of respect that he had for him. But that none of that, I think—well, I think that could partially actually explain what happened here, is that for everything that you could say about Nick Saban being an asshole and being horrible— to work for, that there is a certain kind of public decorum and a position, as Jimbo Fisher was acknowledging, that he is the czar of college football. And so to be called out by him, it's not just ba- a bad look for Jimbo Fisher because of the esteem that the world holds um, Nick Saban in. It's because Nick Saban was his boss. And like, even if you hate your boss to like have your boss just like talk shit about you in public like that, it's gonna make you feel a certain way.
5: And Josh, you mentioned that Stefan is underplaying how personal it was between the two of these men. I think you might be underplaying it too. <laughs> and I'm shocked that an LSU man such as yourself would do that. I think that one of the and I'm not inside either of these coaches' heads, but one of the frequently cited sources of tension between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher is that in the 2000s, you know, not long after they had worked together at LSU, where Saban was the head coach and Fisher was the offensive coordinator. If you remember, Jimbo was a finalist, the finalist, very close to getting the head coaching job at UAB, Alabama, Birmingham. And this gets into some very college football backroom (laughs) politicking. But one of the things we know about UAB is that it is heavily influenced by the University of Alabama Board of Trustees. And that Board of Trustees has always liked UAB to be weak, um, so much so that they literally tanked and took the program out of existence for a couple of years in the 2010s. And it is, I think, a widely understood school of thought around at least college football media and reporters in Alabama, that Alabama interests that were uh, ultimately in the end uh, would be loyal to Nick Saban, though he wasn't yet in that job. I mean, this was about twenty, uh, about two thousand six or so. Uh, that basically Alabama interests froze Jimbo out of that head coaching job. It worked out well. It worked out very well for Jimbo. He went to Florida State. It's a better job than UAB. He won a national title there. But there's been this kind of Alabama Jimbo Fisher thing going on for years and years and years. And so I, I think there's significant bad blood there.
3: There's also um, this thing with Texas A&M it, among college football fans uh, and just the whole college football world. And that being that they're just kind of the nouveau riche school trying to buy their way to relevance. And that doesn't have even have to do with NIL. I mean, they built a whole uh, just like crazy, crazy expansion on their stadium during the Johnny Manziel years and the Johnny Manziel years also, uh, marked by uh, various, uh, chicanery. And so the stuff that, um, Nick Saban is vocalizing would be considered extremely polite and restrained on like the median college football message board, you know, vis-a-vis how people feel about Texas A&M. And the thing that, um, has happened since they joined the SEC is that they have won zero conference titles. And they've always seemed like they kind of had these these moments, like when Johnny Manziel beat Alabama or when Zach Calzada beat Alabama last year, that they just have not been able to back up. And the thing that seems to be changing is that when you get a number one recruiting class, Alex, with a few exceptions, you tend to win a national championship. And so it just seems like something... Either AM is going to win a championship or the whole thing there is going to explode dramatically for Jimbo. And so it's just a period of very of like potential change and high stress in college station and for everyone who's observing that program too.
5: It is. And it's going to be curious to see how it unfolds because this AM number one recruiting class, which stacks up as one of the best by, by the rankings of any recruiting class since they started tracking these things about 20 years ago in detail is that it's the first class of this transfer portal. You don't have to sit out a year if you transfer dynamic that the NCAA put in place in 2021. Uh, it is the first one, the second one really, but the first one in kind of this enhanced world of name, image, and likeness. So in theory, uh, every you know a, a large number of players from that a class, if they aren't happy with where they are, could leave in a year. And that is a different dynamic than what, for instance, Saban has had at Alabama since 2007, where if you recruit players, you have a pretty good understanding that you're going to have them for three or four years. In Alabama's case, it's, it's often three because so many of these top players are off to the NFL at that point. But there's a little bit more stability, a little bit more roster continuity. And, and Josh, it is interesting that a now seems very offended about the notion that money might have somehow been involved in getting this recruiting class because you're exactly right that they love to throw money at football just for the sake of doing it and to say that they do. They are the biggest, baddest money blowers in college football. That's something that I think most A&M fans would tell you that they take some pride in. And it was something that they loved to hold over Texas when they moved from the Big 12 to the SEC and made some more money while Texas, though it is the richest athletic department in the country, uh, quote unquote, stayed poor in the Big 12. So. I don't know why that is that now money is such a, a verboten concept at a and I think it might have something to do with a little bit of ego and not wanting to, you know, have this idea out there that you got these great recruits for any reason other than that you're a great recruiter. I don't know, but it's definitely a change from what they usually take pride in. Is it
2: possible here that the biggest truth teller is Deion Sanders Um, who was really collateral damage in all of these comments. If it was purely just Sabin and Fisher, why would Sabin drag these other people into it? There is something gnawing at Nick Sabin about where NIL might go, and the possibility that the kinds of players that he recruits could be lured by people like Deion Sanders, who are coaching at HBCUs or at other lesser programs.
3: I thought they and were friends based on that Affleck commercial. That
2: Affleck commercial, yeah. I'm, yeah
5: several Affleck commercials. I, I think found. they are friends. It was interesting. And, and Deion said some had a much more restrained response than Jimbo did and basically said, you know, Nick was wrong on this, but we're still good. I'm, I'm paraphrasing But he also
2: that. said, "Like, don't start accusing me of paying players because I know all about who pays players in college sports." Um, it wasn't like Sander shrunk from the uh, from the accusation that he was doing something wrong.
5: I I don't think he completely shrunk from it, but I think maybe Nick overstated exactly how public Dion was about this, like. Nick basically said that Jackson State was bragging about it in the newspaper that they had used name, image, and likeness to pay a five star recruit to go there. And I don't know that Jackson State actually did that. I don't remember Dion putting it in those terms. I think it's widely expected by people who track these things that, you know, yeah, Dion, with all of his media uh, contacts and his business contacts and the unprecedented nature of a recruit. Rated that highly, going to Jackson State. That oh, sure, there might have been something involved. Like no one has to pretend we were born yesterday. But Nick probably exaggerated the publicity of it all.
3: The other thing I I think that Warren's mentioning here is, um, and I believe this was in the athletic piece too, that just as Saban is a divisive figure, so is Jimbo Fisher. That there are some people that believe he's like a great guy and and authentic and others who think he's the biggest phony in the sport. And if we're talking about kind of whose hands are are clean and who's a paragon here, I mean, just look at what Jimbo Fisher did at Florida State with how they handled players who had very serious criminal allegations uh, against them. And um, so I kind of... That's the box that I've put Jimbo Fisher in for a long time. And so there is some element of this that, I mean, obviously 98% of it is performance for fans, for for whoever. But just seeing him up there acting like, and, and his repeated invocation of 17-year-old kids and you're attacking 17-year-old kids, which Nick Saban did not do at all. Um, no, just. No. The, the whole thing kind of galled me in that sense because I just don't like seeing Jimbo Fisher act aggrieved as if he's never done anything that um, could or should be called out. Jimbo Fisher is a better
5: avatar for so many things that people don't like about college football than almost any coach in the history of college football. Not, not any, he has not had a downfall in scandal the way that some coaches have. Uh, but the Jameis Winston situation at Florida state Uh, that he, you know, very much sided with his player in a very public way um, and did not seem to have a lot of tolerance for anyone who would suggest that Jimbo could have taken the charges against his player more seriously. Uh, The way that he signed the largest contract for a coach in college football history when he got to Texas A&M, you know, if you're talking about who brings big money into college sports, uh, who tolerates some of the less scrupulous, horrible things that have come along with college sports over the years. You know, Jimbo's like a one-year guy. He's very close to the top of that list or the bottom, depending on how you're looking at it. So yeah, that he is acting like this little engine that could, poor old coach of A&M, just trying to stick up for his players is obviously ridiculous and nobody should take it that seriously.
3: Alex Kirshner talks about college football on the podcast Split Zone Duo. If you want to hear more, they did an episode on Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban. He also writes for Slate. uh, And we are grateful for you coming on, Alex. Thank you. Always fun. Up next, The Washington Post's Molly Hensley-Clancy on U.S. soccer's historic equal pay deal. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, The Washington Post's Molly Hensley-Clancy will be with us and we'll talk about a recent story that she wrote about college athletes that have died by suicide. She'll discuss um, what athletes told her um, and what she thinks that the NCAA should be doing about this issue. If you wanna hear that, um, you should become a Slate Plus member. You get no ads on the Slate podcast, you get to support our show, and you get bonus segments on Hang Up, Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gap Fest, and other Slate shows. To sign up, go to Slate.com slash Plus. Again, that's Slate.com slash Plus.
2: Reasserted its dominance of European club football with a 3-1 thrashing of defending champion and upstart Barcelona. I guess it's hard to be an upstart and a defending champion at the same time, but I think that's true. Lyon was led in part by two U.S. national team starters, veteran Lindsey Horan and newcomer Katerina Macario, who became the first American to score in a Women's Champions League final. Last week in the United States, meanwhile, the U.S. Soccer Federation announced a landmark collective bargaining agreement that will pay the men's and women's national team players the same per-game rates, and more impressively, pool all of the prize money won by the teams at their respective World Cup tournaments and share it equally. Molly Hensley-Clancy of the Washington Post has been covering the U.S. women's team's fight for pay equity. Hello, Molly. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back on the show. It was a big week in women's soccer. Let's start with the pay deal. Given that just a couple of years ago, the U.S. Soccer Federation was demeaning its own players in court filings, this looks like, A, a gigantic victory for the U.S. women that, B, could help reshape how women's soccer players around the world are compensated. Is that the case?
1: Yeah, I mean I would say that's that's pretty much uh it. That's my understanding of it. I think that it was kind of hard watching this all play out over the last few years to really believe that they were going to end up in this place. Um because you know, US soccer was arguing that there was no way that they was they would ever be able to equalize this the prize um uh, the World Cup bonuses. They were saying that, you know, this was just like this was impossible and they were also saying like it's not our job to do this. Uh, this is FIFA's problem. FIFA are the ones that are paying men and women unequally, and we're just kind of passing along that money. So I, I was watching and I kind of just thought, I don't understand. I don't see how they're going uh, to get to a truly equal solution. Um, I think it's interesting to look at the solution they did land on and say, it is equal. Is it totally fair? I don't know. Um, it's just it's a it's a really fascinating um, way that they've they've worked out to do this. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I want to get into that in a moment. Um, but first, just because equalizing the World Cup money was uh, yeah. was considered to be kind of off the table, it felt like. Um, and when other um, national federations and, and other countries have touted kind of equal pay deals, it's always been a percentage um, that men and women are getting the same percentage, not the same uh, amount. And so it was so surprising and felt... Whereas in, in a lot of labor deals and, and in this labor deal as well, there's always some give and give and take between labor and management. This felt like just such a huge win um, that, that that was really the headline. And so the question that I have and Walker Zimmerman, um, men's player, who is kind of representative on a press call about this said, yeah, it wasn't necessarily easy for us to get there with the men's team. Do you have any sense of actually how they they got there and why? Um, the men's team agreed to it, why um, U.S. soccer was able to to make this concession?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been doing some reporting on this because I had that question as well. I mean, I think that there's a couple of kind of important factors to understand. One is that there are multiple ways to get to the place of paying equal World Cup bonuses. U.S. soccer chose to and has chosen for a while to pass along, you know, 90% of the prize money to the men um, around there. But, you know, for a while, the women weren't even getting any money for for winning the World Cup. I don't think that changed till like 2011. So a lot of federations will choose to just pay a flat fee, like $100,000 or whatever, if you win. Um, So I think that there were a lot of options on the table for how they would get there. The problem was, in the past, U.S. Soccer had agreed to this big payout to the men, so it was—it seemed like it was going to be really hard to get them to, you know, agree to take a a, a substantial cut to that, um, even if it was pretty abnormal that they were already getting this money. Um, I think there's a couple. My understanding and my reporting: the ways they got there. One is that the rest of this deal is great for the men. Um, it's great for the women too, but it's really good. It's the economic terms that they wanted for, you know, normal games. They're getting back pay. Um, so I think that they're, you know, there's a lot in this deal that they want. Uh, and then the other thing is just, you know, U.S. soccer had said, we're not going to make a deal with either of you at a certain point. We're not going to make a deal with either of you unless it's an equal pay deal. So, You know, they weren't going to get a contract. Um, It wasn't like the alternative here was to get, you know, non-equal pay. Like this was the only contract they were going to get. And so they had to figure out how to, you know, if they wanted anything, they had to figure this out.
3: Are there also scenarios, Molly, in which the women could actually subsidize the men?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's another important point here is that it's not like the men are just taking a 50% pay cut in the prize money, depending on how it works out. And these are not totally unlikely scenarios based on kind of what we've seen. The men could end up um, you know, going out in the first round of the World Cup, the women win the World Cup, and suddenly you have the women giving some of their money to the men. Um, and also, you know, FIFA prize money could change. I think that you could see this putting pressure on FIFA to not just increase the prize money for the women, but to actually close the gap between men and women. And if that starts happening, you know, then it's it's not quite as unequal of a share um, as it is right now. So you could, again, see, you know, the women giving some of their money to to the men's team if they don't do as well.
2: And on top of that, the deal includes um, a, a share of commercial revenues generated by the teams and the players going being shared equally as well. And which team is more marketable, which team has been more commercially viable and interesting? The women have. So the men are going to be able to jump on that. And this does incentivize everybody to get out there and generate more money as as units. The pressure to get this done, though, Molly, clearly is the result of who is running the U.S. Soccer Federation. I mean, there was a shift in the presidency, which is an unpaid position, from Carlos Cordero, who was one of the people that signed off on these court filings that basically disparage the women, who said that their game isn't as as interesting as the men, that they don't work as hard as the men um, in the court case that the women had filed. He was replaced by Cindy parlo Cohn, former U.S. national team player. She has been the driving force in getting this done. And absent her presence, this clearly would not have happened this way. Uh, our, our friend Grant Wall wrote that deser- parlo Cohn deserves to be called a transformative figure in the history of soccer in the United States.
1: Yeah, I think that Cindy Cohn's role in this is huge. I, I mean, I and I also think that, you know, The role that the lawsuit played in this is also huge. And like you said, it was the reason that, you know, Carlos Cordero left because it kind of his legal arguments exposed how the Federation thought of these things. But throughout the whole process, even once the lawsuit was settled, you could still see, you know, the women's case for why they were making unequal pay, which was that, you know, it doesn't matter how much we make total. What matters is the rate of pay, how much we get paid per game per win. That's what matters here. I think that over the course of the negotiations, you can see, you know, U.S. soccer eventually agreeing to that premise. And that's the premise under which this contract was, was negotiated. Without the lawsuit, you know, none of this happened. So I think, you know, Cindy Cohn definitely deserves credit here. But the, even though the lawsuit and, you know, the, the contract negotiations were directly, you know, they were separate planes. They were kind of acting forces on each other throughout the whole process
3: through my understanding. This is kind of glib, and I don't actually believe it, but I just <laughs> thought th- found it funny in your, uh, when I was asking about the um, women subsidizing the men. Th- there's some way in which the men are betting against themselves. Like, if we go out in the first round and the women win, then like uh, we still get some cash. But on the women's side, the shape of this deal is so much different than the previous one. And that's um, a consequence of this being equalized across the board for for men and women. Whereas, you know, the, the women used to make set salaries. Now there's no kind of guaranteed pay. And if you don't get called in, if you don't play a game um, as a potential women's national team player, then you don't get anything at all. And an explanation that was given um, by some of the players, Molly, which I found super interesting, was that this is actually betting on the NWSL and that the league seems more solid, it's paying better salaries. And based on all the great reporting that you've done about like how fucked up that league is in terms of how it's been run, in terms of the coaches, I found it um, really interesting that there was that kind of expression of confidence in the league and it's like solidity. Um, Did you find that interesting too?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is it's interesting to see this all happening after last year because it really did expose um a lot of the problems with the nwsl and it's important to remember that like the u.s women's national team players and most of the other nwsl players knew knew this stuff before long before we did and i i've always thought of this because there's always been a conversation about you know certain national team players not being invested in the nwsl um and now that we know what they knew um it's it's easier for me to see why they wouldn't be invested in why they would, you know, have have some distance from this league that was not keeping them safe. Um, and I do think, I mean, you know, this is not a direct correlation, but you have seen a shift in some in the some of the national team players. Um, have been performing really well. You know, Alex Morgan was always this player that in the NWSL was underperforming. You know, she never really was contributing quite as much to her club team as her national team. Now she's she's the leading scorer in the league, I think, um, in the regular season. So I, I do think that they now have, because they feel safer in this league, they have this, you know, the NWSL players have their own CBA now, which is huge. The, I think the national team players feel safer and feel more able to, like, compete in this league um, that they maybe previously felt like to keep themselves safe they had to kind of hold, hold back from, you know?
2: Well, and I also wonder whether you – know, and I think this can go both ways – but if they feel like the opportunity to get paid here – um is improved and that sharing this revenue is going to lead to a, a a huge increase in their overall earnings that maybe they're willing to stay. On the flip side and I think this will help us transition to talking about what's going on in Europe right now. Um the growth in the sport is there. Um the the big clubs, Chelsea, Barcelona, PSG, they're all pumping money into their women's programs. Barcelona um mostly by giving away tickets twice-filled a uh, 90,000-seat stadium for games, breaking records for women's soccer. Um, and we've seen, you know, we saw in the Champions League final two of America's stars, an established one in Lindsay Horan and an up-and-coming one in Katerina Macario, performing well on the stage there. And, you know, previously... It felt like, you know, the top players like Alex Morgan and Tobin Heath and others would sort of dabble in playing in Europe. But now as Europe seems to be overtaking the United States in some ways on a league level, does the incentive of, A, knowing that you've got some security from this uh, collective bargaining deal with the U.S. Federation, free up the women to leave the NWSL? They were bound to play in the NWSL by their previous contract. Now they don't have that.
1: Yeah, I think it could, I think you could see it cutting both ways. I think the, the hope is that it, it, it strengthens the NWSL because it's adding this competition. You know, they're going to have to raise salaries. They're going to have to compete for players. But I also think, you know, yeah, I, watching, um, there was a big difference in that final because, you know, Macario and Haran con- contributed so much to that and they contributed to the team, particularly Macario over the course of the season. And typically when we've seen U.S. women's players go to Europe, like they don't, they're not, some of them have been exceptional, but for the most part, they really haven't done that well, partly because they've had to have this foot back in the NWSL you know, they've had to have a foot back on the national team. That was where their money was coming from. So I think that there's kind of this season for you for the U.S. women has unlocked this possibility to really be like a full member of a European team the way Macario is. And Haran I think, is over there for three years as well, even though it's a a loan with the thorns. So, you know, that's a that's a pretty big difference than like going over there for a few months the way, you know, they've done in the past.
3: It's funny kind of how there's a First mover advantage for um, the the United States and women's soccer in a lot of different ways in the international game, and then that in WSL, um, I guess to some degree has a first mover advantage, given that a lot of these storied clubs um, weren't investing in women's game at all. I mean, it was less than a decade ago that the Barcelona women weren't professional. Um, But then you have the kind of trump card first mover advantage of, like, this is Barcelona, and this is, you know, Chelsea was in the championship last year, and you have these story teams and and venues, and it's, I think, all to the good that there's this competition, but just as the US is now in the international game facing competition from these traditional powers, like Spain and Germany and England that are investing more, you wonder if the whole, like, everything is going to get kind of submerged and overrun. And Lindsay Haran, in an interview with Grant Wall, she there was a pretty telling quote in there. I don't want to make it sound like the NWSL is just this kick-it-long type of play because I think it's really developing. But in Lyon, especially in this group, the players are so smart, so tactically smart, etc. You are, I think, Lindsay, saying that it's just this kick-it-long type of play. (laughs) Yeah
1: yeah i think i mean the there's always been this criticism of the nwsl style um i mean i think that i'm interested to see um right now the sort of ascendant club in the league is angel city which is not attached to a men's team um and san diego that's wave, the one in la yeah by, in la a, it's, a group of women right it's owned by natalie portman um you've got women investors women gm uh women GM. So I, I kind of wonder if that's not offering a, a path forward for the NWSL when you have these giant men's clubs that are now competing. I mean, to you ultimately for a long for the foreseeable future, I do think that, you know, you're always going to be second to the men's club um if you're in europe maybe not so much for leon but like for barcelona um so if you have this opportunity to go to a club that's like owned by women created by women and doesn't have a men's team that you're constantly having to be secondary to like that could be a cool you know comp- competitive path but you know then you have to compete on the financial level and and it's not clear yet you know whether they'll be able to do that it's just it is interesting
2: yeah i mean that's that's the that's the issue it's that if juventus and man city and the giant european clubs even if the women's teams play second fiddle there in some ways if the investment dwarfs what right. any nwsl team can invest in the women and the salaries that can pay it's going to shift Automatically, I mean, you know, the NWSL and women's soccer has always been built on, uh, on what I've supported and believed to be hugely important: this empowerment model for girls and women. Um, The Europeans are looking at it as a financial opportunity to capitalize on another kind of football, um, and that is going to give them a structural advantage going forward. And it will be interesting to see, I think, whether. Particularly developing players like Macario, younger players who are great and have um, bright futures on the U.S. national team, choose to go to Europe and, and play in that kind of environment where 50, 60, 70,000 fans are turning out for big games. We'll post some links to Molly's reporting uh, in the Washington Post about women's soccer. Molly Hensley Clancy, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
3: And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors. who says it was okay. Speaking of which, you can actually get a 1950 Kenny Sailors Bennett's Prune Juice basketball card on eBay. The Buy It Now price is a low low, $275. But consider that an autographed Walt Budco Bennett's Prune Juice card is just $250, and also consider that Walt Budko was a player coach for that Baltimore Bullets team in the 1950-1951 season when he was just 25 years old. Budko died in 2013. His obituary in the Baltimore Sun noted that he was a retired insurance agent, that he played basketball at the YMCA with someone named Emil Buzzy Budnitz, and that, according to a friend, he was a non-controversial family man and a classy guy. His feelings about Bennett's prune juice? Unknown. Stefan, what is your Walt Budko?
2: Roger Angel finally died. If the finally sounds cold, I think that's how Angel himself might have described living four months short of 102 years without sentiment. In 2014, in a 5175-word essay published at the comparatively young age of 93, titled This Old Man, Angel wrote, death will get it on with me eventually, and stay much too long, and though I'm in no hurry about the meeting, I feel I know him almost too well by now. Roger Angel was born in Manhattan on September 19, 1920. On that day, in the northern part of the borough, at the polo grounds, 38,000 people watched the New York Giants beat the Cincinnati Reds 7-6, John McGraw managed the Giants, high pockets Kelly went 2-for-5 with 2 RBI for the winners. The Yankees were on the road in St. Louis, losing to the Browns 6-1. It was Babe Ruth's first season with the team. Yankee Stadium wasn't yet built. While Angel was being born, the other Bambino went 0-for-3. So did the player in front of him in the lineup, first baseman Wally Pipp. Pipp wouldn't be replaced by Lou Gehrig for another five years. As many obituaries and tributes last week noted, Angel didn't start writing about baseball in The New Yorker, except for a talk of the town piece about Casey Stengel, until 1962, when he was 41. Like his mother, Katherine, and his stepfather, E.B. White, Angel wrote and edited other stuff there. The magazine's editor at the time, William Shawn, sent him to spring training in Florida. His first piece was about sitting in the stands with the elderly citizenry, taking in the expansion Mets, Sandy Koufax, and in one instant, in his direct line of sight, Whitey Ford on the mound for the Yankees and Warren Spahn in the bullpen for Milwaukee, quote, a trick photograph, a Trump Loy, 158-game winner and a 309-game winner throwing baseballs in the same fragment of a space, end quote. Before moving to the press box, Angel watched from the stands for a few years, relaying the game as he felt it and deconstructing it in ways that Daily Hacks didn't or couldn't. In June of 62, he wrote that Willie Mays, the best baseball player anywhere, caught flies in front of his belt buckle like a grocer catching a box of breakfast food pulled from a shelf. In the same paragraph, he described Mays hitting a triple— his shoulders swinging to his huge strides, his spikes digging up great chunks of infield dirt, the cap flies off at second, he cuts the base like a racing car, looking back over his shoulder at the ball and lopes grandly into third and everyone who has watched him finds himself laughing with excitement and shared delight. The idea of baseball as a shared delight defined Angel's coverage. For certain fans, his pointillistic, ruminative, multi-thousand-word recaps, published weeks after the end of each season, pieces with titles like the highfalutin Agincourt and After about the 1975 World Series, and the delicious palindrome Not-So-Boston about 1986 were remarkable. But he wrote about much more, all of it at the same ridiculous length. Profiling Bob Gibson in retirement in 1980, Angel wrote this of middle life. There is a loss of light and ease and early joy, and we look to other exemplars, mentors and philosophers, grown men, to sustain us in that loss. A few athletes, a rare handful, have gone on once their day out on the field was done to join that number, and it is possible the expectation will not quite go away that Bob Gibson may be among them someday. Angel wrote about the art of hitting, a woman umpire, the work of the scout, and in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the arrival of free agency and labor war. On that, Angel was modestly progressive from the start. He identified the owners as the bad guys and questioned the twisted priorities of stadium funding governments. But he seemed nonplussed by the turmoil, surprised and confused, not quite sure how to process the change, disappointed that filthy money was intruding on the excitement. In 1981, after a few players, Dave Winfield, Fred Lynn, George Brett, broke the million-dollar mark, Angel lamented that the top salary figures are beyond ignoring and beyond rational defense, for they deform and shame the sport. He wasn't alone in thinking that way among fans or writers, but I imagine Angel wished he had recognized in the moment that after a hundred years of owner control and penury, the rebalancing of baseball's economics was long overdue. He was otherwise never on the immoral side. In his 1991 account of the Braves Twins World Series, Angel was sympathetic to the anti-tomahawk chop protests by native groups. Quote, the team name and the chants and the chops may be cheerful in intention, he wrote, but they're injuries as well, little cuts that stand for something a good deal worse. In 1975, he wrote about the reporters coming to see new Cleveland skipper Frank Robinson, quote, for the same unspoken and unspeakable purpose. How does a black manager manage? What is black managing? How does it uh, feel to be the first black manager? Could he have been more forceful? Yes. His self-acknowledged privilege and his overwhelming decency seemed to preclude raising his voice. Better to make the point subtly. In any case, none of the business or cultural issues distracted Angel from the personal pleasure of watching baseball, from sharing his delight. As I read or reread some of Angel's work over the weekend, I was struck mostly by the breadth of the coverage, the beauty of the sentences, the general absence of mawkishness, and the consistent willingness to be amazed and entertained. Almost no one writes about sports that way anymore, maybe with good reason. A snail mail season review, especially one as mannered and literary as Angels, would feel instantly dated and possibly naive. An editor would sand down the discursive descriptions, kill the four-syllable words, and ask for the analytics. Or maybe the sport just doesn't anymore deserve and society doesn't encourage the type of patient and respectful coverage that Angel crafted, one that hinges on observing and analyzing closely and selflessly day after day. About that 1986 season and its frenetic Mets Red Sox finale, Angel wrote, baseball is cumulative and rewards the stayer. Angel stayed, readers were rewarded, and he'd be the first to acknowledge. That he was too.
3: That was excellent. No mention of sesquipedalian though. Um,
2: you mean tattered demalion?
3: Oh, tattered demalion! <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> or sesquipedalian. I mean, but yes, tattered is what I was thinking of uh, your your previous afterball. But yeah, it's interesting to think about if he had come up now, what sport he would write about. Just because baseball doesn't have the same uh, cultural primacy that it does yeah. now. So, like, uh, you know, you, you think of David Foster Wallace on tennis as an example mm-hmm. of, of something that's a, a bit more recent and, and modern, although tennis doesn't even have—certainly have the same uh, amount of mass popularity that uh, baseball did when Angel started writing. Football um, certainly does, and there are people that write kind of contemplatively and romantically about football, but then there's also the like market demands and, and pressures around like who's allowed to write about what and and where. And so maybe, you know, not maybe, like a lot of the um, kind of romance and resonance of, of what he was doing was that it was like in print in the esteemed New Yorker as opposed on, I mean, there was like, Grantland was like <laughs> created, that website to, to kind of get some of that, uh, that, that juice and evoke that feeling. And so it's a person at a time, at a place with a sport. Um, and I'm not gonna say that that connection won't ever be made again, but those particular connections and where those axes intersected, are, they're never gonna intersect in the same way.
2: I think that's right. And it's, it's mostly I think because of the nature of media Um, You know, like I said at the end, the idea of like a (laughs) 5,000-word rehash of something we've all dissected so minutely over the course of a season just feels quaint and feels unnecessary. We're already overloaded. I think an angel could write about soccer, and I think that's probably in America – where we might see the same sort of forces at play that bring together a sport that sort of encourages the sort of um, discursive and emotional and thoughtful um, kind of uh, literary take about what's happening on a field. Um, and maybe the biggest problem with any sort of writing like this is that we know too much already about everybody. I mean, part of what made Angel... Um, readable and what made the people that he interviewed so open to him was who he was but also the nature of the times. Um, you know, he could fly out and see Bob Gibson, who was notoriously cantankerous, um, and spend three days with him and have meals with him and help him do the dishes, which is what he does in this piece. And it's harder and harder, I think, to sort of break through that, those boundaries that have been, have been erected in sports in the last two or three
3: decades. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendest. to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.